Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's good to see you all today. I'm excited to uh, continue to lead you in worship by bringing the message this morning. Uh, If you're new here, my name's Matt. I'm the worship pastor here at Crossview, and uh, it's such a joy to, to be here seriously with everyone. So I've been tasked to preach the first half of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, This chapter is on the resurrection, and honestly, I am so excited about it. Uh, In fact, a couple weeks ago in staff meeting, we were discussing the the next few weeks, and uh, Jeff said, Matt's preaching on the first, and I exploded and said, resurrection, baby! (laughs) And the legendary Kyle White was like, that's your sermon title. (laughs) So my sermon this morning is titled Resurrection Baby uh, as a little hats off to Kyle this week. (laughs) So we talked a lot, we talked about a lot of big topics throughout 1 Corinthians as we are navigating to the end of this book here soon. And uh, we've talked about conversations ranging from human sexuality to different roles in the church. And now we get to talk about probably the most important topic, not just in the book of 1 Corinthians, but in the whole Bible. And that is the resurrection. So I'll be honest, I'm on this journey of learning more and more about just how vital the resurrection is to being a Christian I come from a tradition of Christianity that focused solely on the death of Christ. So preparing this message on resurrection has been really uh, healing and good for my soul. Um, And not that I didn't grow up in a church that didn't preach the resurrection, but the emphasis every Sunday was Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died. And today we're going to talk about Jesus rose, Jesus rose, Jesus rose. I'm so excited. So... uh, This will be a great message this morning, I hope, and I hope that we can leave the service this morning seeing how essential the resurrection is to us as Christians. So in the summer of 2015, I did a ministry internship in Carbondale, Illinois, where I got to learn from Pastor Phil. Uh, Pastor Phil was a local church pastor who also did street evangelism at SIU. So for probably the last 15 to 20 years, Phil would go to the same spot at SIU and evangelize to college students. And the students uh, were very familiar with Phil um, and would often call the place Phil's Corner as he would prop up his portable speaker system and evangelize to college students. Now, part of my internship was to learn how to share the gospel with complete strangers in under 30 seconds. Basically, the whole idea of this evangelism was if you were to hop on an elevator with someone, how would you share the gospel before they got off of their floor? Uh, And so in order to do this, I learned a formula of major gospel points we felt like these strangers needed to hear in order to be saved. And uh, I'll give you the five seconds. I'm such a pro. I can do it in five seconds, not 30. Uh, Just kidding. The the presentation would, would sound like this. God is holy. Humans are sinful. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Do you believe it? Right? Five seconds. Phil would be so proud. Um... Now, I'm also willing to bet that many of you here today have heard of this exact same presentation or even been converted to Christianity by a gospel presentation like this. And while I thank God that he can use anything to point us to Jesus in whom our salvation is found alone, I want to humbly suggest that as evident in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is not present, um, it is not the gospel. 
If the resurrection is not present in our understanding of the gospel, it's not really the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see that for Paul, the resurrection is everything. In fact, if resurrection baby wasn't going to be my sermon title today, the runner-up was the resurrection's everything. If we don't believe in the resurrection, it doesn't matter if you believe in the crucifixion. Sounds striking, right? Now, as you're able, uh, can you please stand for the reading and hearing of God's word? I know this is new for us, that we like to worship with the physical bodies that God has given us with. And so it's a little bit of a long uh, (laughs) chapter, so if you need to sit down, that's totally fine too. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I, be- I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, right? Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Praise the Lord. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers and sisters, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
So in that same internship in Carbondale, we would often use uh, verses 3 and 4 as scriptural proof for the resurrection. This text reads like an apologetic. So if we were on campus and we encountered a student who had not heard the gospel, we would recite these verses to them as scriptural proof that Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the grave. However, multiple commentators have shown me that this is not necessarily an apologetic text. The specific, the specific text is not meant to persuade non-believers into believing the Christian faith, but was written to believers as an encouragement and reminder of what they believe about Jesus. Remember, this is uh, the church in Corinth. This is a church of Christians. So uh, they didn't need to be converted. They just needed to be reminded of the gospel, right? We don't need to be converted if we're Christians. We sometimes just need to be reminded of the gospel. And so when Paul writes in accordance with the scriptures, Paul's not cherry-picking Bible verses to prove the validity of Jesus. And uh, unfortunately, I think we often do this. I think we sometimes provide a Bible verse for what we believe, then you can't argue with us, we're automatically right, and we can't be argued with because we have found an answer in God's word, regardless if it's in context or not. Now, the Apostle Paul didn't really do that. This phrase is not an apologetic for Paul to prove his point in order to save souls, but rather showing that the entire scriptures from Genesis to Revelation have pointed to the fact that the Jewish Messiah died, was buried, and was raised. This, uh, the history of Israel has now been redeemed and restored in the Messiah through his resurrection. So if Uh, The context of this passage is written to believers in Corinth as a reminder of the gospel. Then that means that verses 1 through 8 may actually be some kind of very early creed that the early church would recite. That is pretty fascinating, right? Uh, So creeds are basically statements of faith that Christians have agreed upon as the, what do we need to know to be a Christian? I know we've all asked that question. What do I need to know to be saved, right? And historically, churches have come out with with creeds, oftentimes to fight heresy uh, against things going on in the church or in the culture. Um, And so that's why we have like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and things like that. Um, And now I grew up in a culture that didn't really like acknowledge the creeds, But when I went to college and my uh, theology courses, I I really learned the importance of creeds because they were so helpful in keeping boundaries of Christianity, right? Um, I heard stories of well-meaning Christians who really loved the Bible, who would end up being heretics, right? And so uh, the different councils would form these creeds so that we could all be in Christian orthodoxy. Uh, And ever since I, I learned that, I just began to fall in love with the creeds. Now notice this about the creed scene here in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So anytime you see the word Christ, know that that word Christ literally means Messiah. The whole scriptures are fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. For theological conservatives like uh, the Pharisees, which Paul was one, it was important for Jesus to fulfill the scriptures. Only the Jewish Messiah could do that. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, the scriptures won't be fulfilled. 
Paul get into this more, but notice it wasn't just Jesus' death that fulfilled the scriptures. It was also his resurrection. Christ had to die for the sins of the world in order to redeem Israel, but it is his resurrection that solidifies Jesus' messiahship. I think that's so fascinating. So these next few verses that say he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, uh, then to the twelve, and then five hundred brothers and sisters, is important for understanding the reality of the resurrection. When we get to Paul's defense for the resurrection, we'll see that Paul is arguing for the reality of the resurrection because the Corinthians have forgotten the importance of it. That's why Paul starts by reciting this creed that uh, the first the Corinthian church definitely would have known, right? So this creed was something that was being orally passed down between different churches from the early church on. This was their statement of faith, if you will. Um, And so Jesus uh, appearing to Peter, the 12 and 500 other people, is also evidence that the resurrection is real, uh, that Jesus really bodily rose from the grave. So uh, that also when he comes again, he will also we will also bodily rise from the grave. And so this is really important for two things. One, um, the resurrection wasn't just verbally announced. It was seen, right? If, you, if one person were like, yeah, like I just rose from the grave, one-on-one, it's like, okay, that's kind of weird. That's not, that didn't really happen. But Jesus appeared to over 500 people, right? Uh, when you have over 500 people, that w- word spreads, right? Um, and it, it becomes a historical account, right? Jesus was a real person who really died and really rose from the grave. And we, by over 500 people saw this. It's evidence, right? Um, so that's super important for understanding the reality of the resurrection for the Corinthian church, but also for us as well. But also he bodily rose from the grave too. Um, this... Uh, this is really important because uh, sometimes I think we understand heaven to be this idea that when we die, our soul goes to this place in the sky. Uh, but actually, that is Greek philosophy, uh, not Christian theology. So as Christians, when we die, we remain in our bodies. And when Christ comes again, we will bodily rise again in the new creation to live our very real physical lives again for all eternity without any pain, suffering, or sin that we often struggle with now. Jesus shows us this when he is resurrected and shows Thomas his scars, and we will have the same body, the same wounds, our same being, but it's going to be redeemed, right? Now, doesn't this just sound better? Doesn't this sound better than a mystical ascent of our soul anyway? Doesn't the fact that we will keep our exact same bodies, that you could go home, look in the mirror, and see yourself and say, that's the person I'm going to be in the new creation. Doesn't that just seem real? Like, it seems a lot more tangible, right? That's really exciting. And I know many of us have scars from our past, things that we've left hidden and things that we've been hurt by through revealing of these things. And we've offered and experienced grace and forgiveness and when we've been hurt by others. And many times this life doesn't seem really like it's worth living because of how overwhelming all of these pains can, of life can be. 
Now, while these sorrows are definitely overwhelming, life in the new creation will set you free from the weight of those pains. When you extend grace and mercy to those who have hurt you, you're practicing resurrection life. You're basically rehearsing for the new creation when God will make all things, not just our bodies, but all of creation. He will make all things new. Now, I'm still learning how to rehearse for the new creation. As an adult, I've done a lot of processing my childhood, Uh, especially now that I'm a new father. I am continually thinking about what kind of father I want to be. Um, And one of those realizations for me was, uh, was just growing up and just realizing that my parents weren't necessarily emotionally available for me. And I'm a pretty emotional guy, if you get to know me. Um, and that was, I really saw this come to fruition uh, about a year ago. And Brenda and I, my wife and I, announced that we were pregnant. And typically, when you announce such great news like that, you're expecting excitement and a party or congratulations, right? And uh, to just say the least, that didn't happen. Um, I was, we both were very underwhelmed by uh, my parents' response or lack thereof. Now, I also know that my parents are elated, that they have a granddaughter now, right? So it's totally fine. But um, But this is a pretty important story because it's not a perfect story of redemption, but it's just a real story of what choosing love is. So after we told them, uh, I knew if I'm to take this whole loving your neighbor seriously, if, you know, all the law and prophets are fulfilled and love your neighbor as yourself, then I should probably have a conversation with my mother, (laughs) And uh, so I called her about a week after, uh, it was around Thanksgiving, I called her about a week after I was leaving worship rehearsal here one night, and I called her and I just asked her, I was like, Mom, are you excited to be a grandma? (laughs) And you could hear her cry. And what she said was, she she said, I'm just afraid for you. Her predominant emotion was fear. Now, some context for my mother is, I've got... Uh, twin brothers who are older than me. Uh, my mom gave birth to twins, which is incredible. <laughs> uh, and she had severe postpartum depression and uh, didn't really have community other than my dad. And so um, so pregnancy was just really hard for her, and becoming a mother was significantly difficult for her. Um, and so that, I say that to give grace and context, because as we were having this conversation, I knew how I felt, and I knew that I should probably tell my mom how I'm feeling, and a part of me was also expecting my mom to, like, realize her lack of response and, like, expecting an apology, but to be honest, that didn't happen, and to be honest, I didn't really share why I felt what I felt. But in that conversation, we showed grace We didn't say all that I think we wanted to say, but we tried to say as much as we could say. And now she's elated, and she loves our daughter, right? And so uh, as we talk about informed, that love is a calibration of grace and truth, right? We showed a lot of grace, but I also showed some truth, because I was like, Mom, we've got an awesome church family. (laughs) 
awesome church family wants to partner with us and to be on this journey of being new parents, right? We've got great friends who want to come over and see her, right? And that's okay. It's, we're excited, right? Um, but this mix of grace and truth, and how do I be a disciple of Jesus? How do I love my parents well, right? Um, and it's hard, and it didn't necessarily get resolved. I mean, she's excited, right? But um, it's not a perfect story of what redemptive relationship looks like, but I think it gives us hope for what we can expect in the new creation, right? Uh, Many of you, like myself, have been deeply wounded by people that we deeply love and care about. And those moments that we want to choose grace and mercy and kindness, you just get a little bit of joy there. And it makes the whole thing worth it. Did it go perfectly? No. But that, that joy, that is just a fraction of what the new creation is going to be like. Many of us have wounds, and Paul also had wounds. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. It was not I, but the grace of God that's with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So these few verses show us Paul's humanity. When Paul says that he is the least of the apostles, he's not practicing false humility. He's actually agreeing with the fact that he really was the least of the apostles, right? So part of what makes an apostle an apostle is physically walking with Jesus. And if we know Paul's story, he didn't do that, right? Paul killed Christians. And Paul was saved by Jesus through a vision on the road to Damascus. So what's up with this guy saying he met Jesus and now he's calling himself an apostle, right? So, and I just think this is interesting. I just think it's so interesting. So the disciples, some of the disciples didn't necessarily review, revere Paul as an apostle. Certainly the Corinthian church was like, who's this guy trying to write to us, right? But Paul here isn't practicing false humility. He's saying, I'm the least of the apostles because I didn't walk with Jesus physically, but also I killed Christians, <laughs> Now, the 12 disciples walked with Jesus on earth, and Paul not only persecuted Christians, but when God saved him, Jesus appeared to him in a way that, again, was not consistent with the other apostles, right? Because Paul killed Christians, did not meet Jesus in the usual way apostleship was earned, then that means many apostles and even the church of Corinth did not view Paul as a legitimate apostle. Now, this is a different aspect, a different understanding or perception of Paul than we're used to in, the, in our 21st century evangelicalism. We love Paul. I mean, since the Reformation, evangelical churches have lifted Paul up for his works on justification, and rightly so. It's such good work. We revere Paul, but Paul would not have revered himself as highly as we do. Paul murdered Christians, yet Jesus changed his life. Paul was a brute, and yet God's saving grace is what turned Paul's life upside down. 
Now notice this about Paul's humanity. Being saved by God doesn't erase all the mistakes one has made or continues to make. I think there's this misconception of Christianity that's like, oh, once you're Christian, you've got everything put together and everything's going to be fine. But that's not true. But being saved means we have experienced the resurrection of Jesus and his resurrection has given us a new life to live right now as we prepare for eternal life in the new creation. I've mentioned this before in some of my previous sermons, but for a 26-year-old, I feel like I've got just one or two more regrets in my life than I feel like I probably should have. Many times I have anxiety over my past and the person I used to be, and I wrestle to believe that God could use me in whatever way he sees fit. At my weakest moment, my absolute worst moment, I fear I'm not bringing about any good in the church or the people in my life. I know this is a lie, but it's a lie that I believe sometimes. I know I shouldn't. So if you struggle with how to come to terms with the regrets in your life, receive this word from Paul. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul actually murdered people. Like, that's not narrative. That's, that, like, actually happened. It's not some kind of, like, spiritual language. It's not like, oh, I spiritually murdered Paul with my language, right? Or I spiritually murdered that person with hard words. It's like, no, like, Paul actually allowed other people to pick up stones and kill Stephen. So if there's anyone who knows the power of regret, it's Paul. And you know what Paul clung to? The grace of God and knowing who he is in Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Only in God's grace can we come to terms with who we are and what we've done. Apart from God's grace, we think that we are mistakes, that we are too sinful to be loved, that uh, we're not worthy of genuine relationship and Frankly, we constantly run from coming to terms with who we are and what we've done because we're afraid, we're ashamed. We, we don't want to look at the things that we've done. That's not pretty. That's not awesome. I wouldn't put that on my social media account. But reflecting on these things while scary are so healing. God's grace equips us to come to terms with our wicked past. But once you receive the grace of God, you are now equipped to come to terms with who you are. Equipped with the grace of God, you realize that in the process of reflecting on your deepest mistakes and your heaviest burden, these things no longer have a hold on you because God's grace wipes each of those things away. You have no fear of condemnation because once you experience the grace of God and come to terms with who you are now, a beloved son or daughter, the weights that you've been carrying are released and you are now set free. That's not it. There's more to this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And what? And his grace toward me was not in vain. We may make mistakes, but God makes no mistakes. His grace toward you is not in vain. God loves to redeem you. 
God loves to care for you. He loves to love you. Do you follow a God who loves to love you this morning? Your deepest regrets may be strong. The grace of God is stronger than the weight of your regret and pains of life. We may have regrets, but God doesn't. His grace towards you is not in vain. He loves to shower you with his never-ending grace. In the grace of God, we can finally come to terms with who we are. We receive a new identity. And we see a loving God who makes no mistake and has no regrets about loving you. Don't for a second think that God is wasting his time loving you. It's not in vain. He knows what he's doing. He makes no mistakes. He loves to love you. If it were not for the resurrection, though, none of this would be true. We would have no new identity, no hope for the new creation if it were not for the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection's everything. It's exactly what Paul says in verses 12 through 20. Now, Paul is such a thoughtful guy, and all the commentaries that I read laid down his logical arguments as to uh, what are you saying if you don't believe in a resurrection? What are you saying if you do believe in the resurrection? But it's a commentary, and so I didn't have a lot of time to lay down all the A, B, and C points. <laughs> but verses 12 through 20 says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, excuse me, is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is central to what we believe as Christians because if we don't believe in the resurrection, our whole religion is built on a lie. It's exactly what Paul says. If the resurrection is not real, we are liars. If Christ has not been raised from the grave, we're still in our sins. We have no hope. Now, if this is true, that's pretty intense and it's kind of scary. How I learned to share the gospel in 30 seconds never made room for the resurrection. Let me ask you this. Does your gospel presentation make room for the resurrection? Because if there's no resurrection, there's no gospel. If we take the word gospel literally as good news, there is no good news if we are left in our sins. None. If there's no resurrection, it doesn't matter if Jesus died. Why? Because if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, he was just another man who died on a cross. And we're left in our sins. 
But we have to tell the whole story. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and Jesus uh, rose from the grave to free us from our sins. Separating the former from the latter produces guilt and shame. Separating the latter from the former produces freedom and no accountability. We need both. We need both. Make sure that you include both when talking about what God has done for you in Christ. It's crucial. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, yes, but Jesus rose from the grave to set you free from your sins. (laughs) I just want to sit here for five seconds. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus rose from the grave to set you free from your sins. So all of this, Paul is saying, if the resurrection is not real, everything's meaningless. But guess what? In fact, Jesus did rise from the grave. And because he is risen, we are set free from our sins. Hallelujah. Resurrection, baby. As Paul explained what happens in, uh, in the resurrection is not real, he now shows us why it is. Like a good theologian, Paul gives us this beautiful contrast between Adam and Christ. We call this a biblical theology. If you can root something in Genesis and point it uh, to see how it's fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament, right? This is exactly what Paul's doing. Verses 20 through 28. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hallelujah. Amen. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I have never read the word subjected so many times in my life. Thanks, Paul. Since Christ rose from the grave, we are no longer under the domain of death that Adam brought to us when he gave into temptation in the garden. While Adam brought sin into the world and infected everyone and everything, Jesus has come to set us free. Adam brought death. Jesus brings eternal life. He's doing it now. And it will all be realized when Christ comes again. At the end of the age, Jesus will claim his resurrected people, hand over his kingdom to the Father, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When death is destroyed, eternal life reigns. And we will all live in the new creation with our redeemed bodies, with the sovereign king as our good and gracious ruler. One commentator says, The destruction of death takes place in the rising of the dead itself. This is what we long for. This is it. This is what we long for. Are you ready for that? The day when all will be made new. 
Many of us have lost loved ones to the grip of death. Now, losing loved ones is a painful process. It's taken its toll on many of us. Death was not God's intent in creating the world. Adam brought death, but in Christ, all will be made new. Death will be no more, and eternal life will run like a flowing stream. Nothing lies outside God's redemptive purposes in Christ, in whom all things will finally be united. Therefore, at the death of death, the final rupture in the universe will be healed, and God alone will rule over all beings, banishing those who have rejected his offer of life, and lovingly govern all those who by grace have entered into God's rest. I say this to encourage you, Crossview. The resurrection's real. And there will be a day when the dead will be raised at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and all will be made new. I also offer, can I offer just a little warning? Please do not let the coming of Christ persuade you to abandon your life right now. The coming of Christ is meant to inspire hope that we will live this life for all eternity, not to abandon the people in your life or to think that the world's just going to burn after you leave. God's making all things new through the resurrection life he has given you now in Jesus when he comes. And when he comes is when it will finally be realized. So have hope. Live a good life as a Christian, flourishing in God's kingdom here on earth, and live your redeemed life as faithfully as you can until Christ comes again. The last thing I want to say today is what Paul talks about in these last few verses. Verse 29 through 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers and sisters, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Since the resurrection gives you eternal life, then eternal life starts right now. It matters how you live. If the resurrection isn't real, you can go uh, and do anything you want with no responsibility for your actions. Honestly, this is where my heart breaks for those who don't know Christ. If if you don't know Christ, then uh, you can do what you want when you want it. And that sounds great. As someone who hasn't been a Christian my whole life and has done what I want when I want, those are the regrets I'm talking about. Sounds like freedom to do all the things that you could ever dream. But life is meaningless without Jesus. It's not an over-emphatic statement. It's, in my understanding, is just true. And this is that paradigm of following Jesus. Since Jesus rose from the grave, then how you live now matters. So we we live in a culture that says freedom is you can do what you want when you want with no responsibilities. But in Jesus, he just says, sacrifice. Our culture says, take, 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 take. Jesus says, give, 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 give. 
And I can tell you, even though in that sacrifice, in that giving, it seems like you're not gaining a whole lot. But I can tell you, it is the most life-giving, joyful thing. And it makes following Christ make me want to be human. Christ said, if, if we want to do all that the law and prophets command, basically, if we want to be biblical Christians, we love God and love our neighbors. That's the key to the resurrection life. We used to think about ourselves before Christ and to live the way we saw best. But in Christ, we can't live the way... This is fascinating. Only in the kingdom of God does this make sense. But in Christ, we can't live the life we used to live. We have to sacrifice and give away of ourselves and our possessions to see other people flourish because that's the best way to live. We have to sacrifice and give away of ourselves to see other people flourish. In this way of life is true joy, contentment, and meaning. Do you want a meaningful life today? Look to Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose from the grave because resurrection life is starting right now. So the resurrection is everything. When Jesus rose from the grave, he fulfilled all of scripture that was looking for the Jewish Messiah to set Israel free from their sins. Paul was personally transformed by the resurrection of Jesus and this reality is what allowed Paul to come to terms with his harsh and wicked past. God's grace toward Paul was not in vain, and God's grace toward you is not in vain this morning. God makes no mistakes. He loves to love you. If the resurrection is not real, then our faith is meaningless. If the resurrection is not real, then our faith is futile. But since it is the truest reality. You are free from your sins now. When the day of resurrection comes, you will rise bodily from your grave as the triune God finally puts death in the grave and we will see God make all things new. Amen. Let's pray. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he's worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
So we're going to respond to this good news by participating in communion together. And so if you didn't grab communion elements on your way in, now is a good time to go get that. Um, But if you have them, then uh, you may get your elements ready. And I really like the word communion. Because the table is where we commune not only with God but also with each other. And so God is here. He's meeting us. He's present. Now I uh, received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it. Do so in remembrance of me. Take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for meeting us here this morning. We thank you that in your resurrection, in your ascension, and you giving us your spirit, that you are guiding us here to worship you and to be satisfied by you. Lord, we need your grace today. And so we thank you for dispensing your grace through the partaking of the bread and cup this morning. Continue to be with us as you uh, receive our praise and worship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.